as I was thinking, I've never had the chance to address you in two days of Rosh Hashanah. And as I was thinking of what I wanted to address and share with you, you know, people often ask me, how do I think of things to say? And I always respond to them, there's so much to say. <laughs> there is. And um, so this is the idea that came to my mind. I thought of a memory. I thought of the moment if I was to look back, and, and maybe this is true for many of us, where we can see that there is a moment which can be seen as a sign for things to come in our life. So I think that the moment was a, that the rabbinate was a call for me came when the rabbi of the synagogue was about to talk. Now most of the kids headed for the door. And if they do that, I never take it personally. But I remained behind to hear him speak. In fact, my mother tells of a story that when I was six years old on Yom Kippur, the rabbi got up to speak, and she stood up to take me out of the uh, sanctuary. I guess we were going to go home. And I turned and pulled her back, and I said, I want to be like him. But as he would speak, as I was sitting there, even from a young age, all the while I was saying to myself, why didn't he say it this way? Or why did he say this first and then that? And my mind was working out not only how to say good things, but how to say good things better. And now more than 25 years in the rabbinate, I've come to learn just how important that is. And think how often in our private lives, in the conversations that we have with people closest to us, how we always end up saying the same things over and over again. How we repeat our themes time and time again. And we don't do this just to make conversation, by the way. Each and every repetition is a reflection of just how important it is for people to understand what we care about. The Hebrew word for learning is the same word for repetition. We say the same things over and over again because as we say them, what they are and who we are change. We become deeper and more understanding that the challenge of our lives isn't a book of endless themes but your life is actually just a few, and a very few small themes at that. My theme is about ensuring Jewish life, about seeing that our story will never reach its last chapter, of making, repeating the arguments time and again as to why our children and our grandchildren should treasure, treasure this faith and not let go of it. And more than any other idea, it is this one that is the great theme of our time. It consumes me, and I believe that because you are here today, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, that it is the same for you. It's in the question that I know that you have been asked and I have been asked, is why do I have to come here? Why do I have to come to shul today? Why can't I just go for a walk on the beach and worship God? Why can't I go to a mountain or go away on a vacation and meditate and think about God? I remember years ago hearing Elie Wiesel say that when he began his career, he hoped to help accomplish four impossible things. One, creating the state of Israel. 
Two, keeping alive the memory of the victims of the Shoah. Three, the freeing of Soviet Jewry. And four, the maintaining of Jewish continuity. The first three, he said, have been astonishingly been accomplished. And is it foolish to think that having done three impossible things, that the fourth is impossible too? You know, when the waves of Jewish immigrants came to the shores of North America, many of those Jews were not observant, but they gathered in synagogues. They built synagogues. They did this because those who came in those early times needed people who could translate this new world for them. So the rabbi would stand up on a Shabbat morning and he would talk about politics. He would talk about the society that they lived in. He would talk about the need for schooling for their kids and how to find jobs. The rabbis of those generations were venerated by the immigrants as wise people who could lead them to understand of explaining how they could be Canadians and Americans to those newly landed Jews. But rabbis today are still needed to be translators. But what needs translation today isn't the editorial from, from the Globe and Mail or the New York Times or an explanation on how to vote or what school you should send your kids to. The truth of the matter is the job of a rabbi today is to translate how to be Jewish to people who understand all too well how to be Canadians and Americans. It's our job to explain what Judaism means and what values it has to a society that at times can only see the value of things that have a price tag. Judaism's enduring message that we share with our children and our grandchildren and with ourselves is the value of moral victories where the victory cannot be seen, but we know that it is felt. I remember hearing a story about a well-known American rabbi. His name was Harold Schulweis. He was a survivor of the Holocaust. And he tells a story where he's speaking to a group of children at a Hebrew school, and he tells them that God is everywhere. And one of the children raises their hand and says, Rabbi, do you really believe that God is everywhere? And the rabbi says, yes. So the kid says, is God in that closet? No, says the rabbi. Is God in that desk, the kid asks. No, says the rabbi. And the, and the child says, ah, I gotcha. You see, the child was misled. Because we have a problem with spatial metaphors. If we think that something is everywhere, then we believe it has to be everywhere in space. So the rabbi, because he was a rabbi, so he was smart, <laughs> then asked the boy if he believes that love is everywhere. And the boy said he did. So the rabbi says, is love in that closet? Is love in the desk? The boy thought he had outwitted the rabbi, but he hadn't. What you think, when we say that love is everywhere, no one is actually thinking that it's in your coat pocket too. What we mean is that love is inside of you. So in Judaism, we see two kinds of space. One idea is where it is up there, up in the mountains, up in heaven, something far and removed from us. The second is a space inside of us. That's the second space. 
But it seems to me that there's also a third idea. One that says that yes to the things up there and yes to the things inside of us, inside here. But that there is another area of space that points to what is around us, which helps answer why you support and attend and maybe at times even drag your children and grandchildren to a synagogue. Yes, it is true that one of the purposes of a synagogue is the idea that it reminds us to transcend ourselves, to make us reach above and beyond who we are and how we live. That synagogues are built to inspire us to reach above and beyond our normal existence. So on a daily basis, we work and we drive our cars, we sit at home and we watch TV, and we go to the movies. And while we do all those things, we eat and we chew gum and we wear sweatpants and we talk. But when we come to the shul, we take the gum outside of our mouths. There is no concession stand outside, despite the many suggestions people have made of selling coffee and popcorn. When we come to a shul, we don't wear shorts and t-shirts. We wear nicer clothes. We don't converse with our family and friends freely, at least when the rabbi is talking because we come here to talk and meet with something greater than life. Because outside of here we see many things, but reverence is not one of them. Outside of this building you are told what to buy, what to wear, where to go, and what you should think. But in here we encourage people to reverence. In here we encourage people not just to be the best in themselves, but to be something better than the best in ourselves. It is the connection with something far better than what is best in me. And in doing so, we hope to become a little bit better each and every time we are here. That is why this place is so very different from all the other places we spend time in. Elsewhere, wherever you go, you may be judged by what you make or how you look or who your family is. But here, we only ask that you reach for the better. And how can I prove it to you? Well, just think of all the times that things, that something has gone wrong in a shul. And then people will turn around and say, how can something like that happen in a synagogue? Because they expect something better. And who can blame them? That's why when I speak to the shul office, I always tell them when people complain that we should do something better, they're right. That's what we're here for to be the example of what better is. Okay, so that's the metaphor of up there, of how we reach beyond ourselves and reach for something that makes us better. And then there is that which goes on inside of us. And if you take the prayers seriously, then prayers of thanks and of healing and of hope feel different here than they do anywhere else. And it's not that you can't give thanks or hope or wishes for healing anywhere else in the world, because you most certainly can. But this is a place that is built specifically, dedicated to your prayers. And this place represents your best chance. Because if you can't focus your soul here, then it stands to reason that out there, the noise of the trivial and the trash, that you stand a lesser chance. Because the shul is a serious place not a somber or sad place, 
But the shul is a serious place. And so it is all connected. Jewish tradition says that after the temple was destroyed, that only three holy places remain. The synagogue, the study hall, and the dinner table, which are the places in our lives where heaven and earth meet. So we've spoken about things up there and things inside here, but perhaps why we come here to this place is to teach us about this third idea of space, which is those things that are around us. Because there are very few places in our society where people of different ages and different wealths and different cultures gather and sit together. There are concerts, sporting events, and synagogues, houses of worship. But concerts and sporting events don't create community. No one says to you, listen, you and I both go to Toronto Maple Leaf games. So I need a loan. Can you help me out? Because a concert or a hockey game are not a community of values. You can go and attend, you can sing and cheer, and still be an entirely different person from the one sitting next to you. But not here. We are a community of values that tie us together. And this is also a worldwide community of values that binds us together. Because when you come here, you say a great deal about what you care for. By you being here, I know that on some level that you care about the Jewish people, that you care about the state of Israel, and that you care for the lonely and the dispossessed, and that we care for the state of our souls. These are the things I know because life is not simply about what is above us or inside of us, but life is also about what is around us. The shul is a serious place. If you are sick, it is a place where people will pray for you. If you are grieving, this is a place where others will support and grieve with you. If you are celebrating, it is a place where people will throw candies and your joy will be ours. And in no small measure, this is the very essence of what we read from the Torah of our ancestors. The first thing the Israelites were told to build when they left Egypt was a house of worship. As I pointed out to you yesterday, the Torah, the Torah could have told them about how to live lives in an inhospitable desert, about providing and shelter and support to one another, because the desert and wilderness are harsh places to live. But in spite of these hardships, they were commanded to build a place of worship, because the freedom from Egypt was not just to end slavery, but it was meant to make a people, and not just a tribe of survivors, but to lead them and the millions of ancestors who would follow them, you and me, toward an idea of what life, not what life is, but what your life can be, and maybe even what it should be. In the Talmud, and this is one of my most favorite stories, is a story of two rabbis, I know, of course, rabbis, who passed by the ruins of a once large and very beautiful synagogue. One rabbi says, How much money, looking at the ruins, 
How much money did our ancestors spend to build this place, thinking that after all that money, all that is left is but ruins and rubble? But the other rabbi corrected him and tells him that he asked the wrong question. The question, he said, is not how much money was spent on building it, but common nefeshot, how many lives were built there? How many souls were enriched by it? How many people moved through and found what they needed? How many people grew by the moments that they spent there? And like so many other times, it is the question that in fact is the answer. This synagogue that we care so much for, it matters. Because in searching for those answers, we in fact find it. The next time you are asked why you come here, the next time your children or grandchildren complain why they should be dragged here, tell them that there are three spaces in life they must touch. The things that are above us, the things that are inside of us, and most importantly as Jews, the things that are around us. This is an enormous moment of strength. We have each other. Shana tova, everyone. A happy and healthy and good new year. Thank you.